Hi, I'm Katie, one of the presenters of Mum, Will the Planet Die Before I Do, the podcast about parenting in the climate crisis. Today we have a guest presenter, Ben McAllen from Zero Carbon Guildford, a charity that focuses on driving community-led climate action. Ben joins me for a chat with Miata Fanbula from the New Economics Foundation. Miata has a wealth of experience developing policy that could help our economy work better for people and planet. We began by asking Miata how her upbringing influences her work on economic, social and environmental justice. Yeah, so I mean, I was um, born in Liberia um, and then moved to Sierra Leone. So my dad's Liberian, my mom's Sierra Leonean, um, and me and my brothers are from both countries. <laughs> um, and, you know, both beautiful countries, but with very tragic histories. So civil wars in both countries, you know, both, uh, I think, in the bottom league table of kind of poverty in the world. Um, And, you know, my parents, in the end, we had to move um, from both countries because uh, the government in Liberia at the time, we were at the top of their kind of target hit list. And so we had to leave and leave pretty quickly and leave the continent. Um, And we came here um, and sought asylum here and my parents settled here. And I think the the two things that have always stayed with me is even though I left, we came here when I was five, that early experience of just seeing huge disparity, you know, the, the there was a, you know, there was a, there was an elite um, in both countries, and then there was a mass of people who are incredibly poor, um, and the sort of poverty that is just unacceptable. And for me, I grew up with that baked into my values that there was something fundamentally unjust about a system that would allow people to be so impoverished at the same time as you had people who were multimillionaires just didn't make any sense to me and that hasn't gone away. And then I think the second is, you know, both there, but also here, actually, if you look at, uh, you know, first, second generation immigrant communities, there is a very tightness, people rally around, there is just, um, you know, self-help is baked into the way that the community works. You will rally around families when they're, you know, facing hard times. People who don't have that much money will sort of pull together in order to help people because it's really tough. There is just a kind of social infrastructure, there's childcare, there's support that's just baked into surviving and surviving in a new country that you're making home. Um, And for me, that's the upside, right? That's us at our very best. Um, And that, that sense of solidarity community exists in every part of the country. Um, It is people at their very best. And we're often forced into a system where we're always chasing life, we're always chasing progression. And we can forget, but that community bit is baked in and it's moments of crisis, it's moments of distress. You are taking to the pandemic where we see that at its most powerful and is there. And for me, whatever we move to needs to tap into that because that is the best of how we operate as a society. And when we get it right, we bake it into our institutions, we bake it into our rules of the game. And I would argue that over the last 40 years, we've become baked individualism, we've baked you know, the pursuit of profit, we've baked all of this. And that's actually quite counterintuitive yeah. for quite social communitarian beings. Um, yeah. And for oh. me, getting to that other bit is the thing that we need to sort of shift to. I'd so it resonates so much what you're saying but then I'm just thinking god how like that is that's big there's loads of opportunity there as you say and it's really exciting but it's like wow that's that's big 
It is, and it's difficult. Um, and in part, it's a sort of, you know, the, the values that every parent will impart to their kids. Um, actually, kids are the most communitarian because they will be in school environments, you know, with kids from different backgrounds and they form a community. Um, and most parents will tell you that actually, you know, if you go into uh, any community, you will build a community around the school. So there is something inherently baked into that. Kids actually grow up expecting that to be the norm. Um, and then at some point we become quite individualized. Uh, and I think there is something about holding on to that uh, and building off the back of that, um, the, the innate that will enable the next generation to kind of grow with that as an expectation. I think that's the very least that parents can do. And you know, creating the space to build those networks um, around your kids. Um, you know, there are a few things that we have within our gift, but building those networks and instilling the kind of the beauty and the importance of that, uh, the beauty and the importance, you know, I, I, we, the area we moved into, we moved in just before the pandemic. And uh, my, my, you know, my, my four-year-old twins now, um, you know, they were one in a bit. I didn't really get, to meet their neighbours, they didn't really get that sense of community. And we're really struggling to retrospectively build it up because yeah, all those same. connections we would have done are not yeah. there. And for me, it's a real priority because I'm like, it's so important to feel like you're part of a community. Um, and that sense of the kind of collective at that scale that then projects up into this, a bigger sense of collective. But you've got, to, you've, you've got to build the time to do that. And it's very hard when you're a busy parent, as I'm discovering right now. Um, is that but, a climate change goal, though, for you? Is that is that almost as important in terms of kind of climate preparedness, how we respond to the climate crisis? It, it is. So for me, the, you know, the one thing to prepare my kids for climate that I want to do is to create that sense of solidarity. Because there is a world in which when this thing hits, um, people take quite an individualized or even a kind of country based. Oh, you know, that island there is sinking and those people are all fleeing. It's not our problem because we're OK. And for me, that is the worst possible response. So that sense of community, that sense of, uh, you know, solidarity, uh, that connection to others that means that it doesn't feel like a small fight. It feels like a bigger fight. Like if I do nothing else but in part that value to my kids so that when they when they are faced with this because it will be their generation that will have to navigate through it it's done with a sense that we've got to do it for the whole it's not enough that we save our little patch here we've got to do it for the whole but unless you instill that at this age I think it's quite hard to claw back I think that's absolutely key to to generally tackling what we face as well because getting out ahead of the game here, building those community structures is really important. I think a big difficulty in organising around climate is often when those community um, setups form with the mutual aid networks and all that sort of thing, it does form out of hardship. And because the climate crisis isn't something that is at the forefront of what we see every day, we see stuff about it every day, but it's not directly impacting most of our lives every single day in global North countries. It's, it's really hard to build that organizing around that but it's got a huge I think role to play both in mitigation and adaptation so the contagious behavior part of uh trying to mitigate some of the some of the global heating that we're facing is in who's getting out on their bikes walking getting more people because of the cleaner air the, the less traffic that becomes a positive feedback loop but you've got to get that critical mass to start going which comes from peer-to-peer -peer interaction building up some of these community support networks I think where people can um 
get, get sort of get I suppose loosely trained on identifying people who've got mental health issues especially in young and eco-anxiety so many kids exactly, with eco-anxiety exactly. which is only going to get you know that's it yeah even just yeah. being able to identify that I think is a really important part if we can start doing some of that now it actually becomes a pretty good adaptation te- uh, adaptation technique I think to dealing with this through things like community share schemes be that you know library of things repair cafes things like that we have downstairs here we support um Surrey Hills baby clothes library so people who are struggling I mean not just for people who are struggling but obviously kids kids clothes you, you, you both know how quickly you go through kids clothes um they're just good ideas basically and so with that community fridge the way we try and do this is a lot of the stuff we'll chat about you know why it's saving waste which is a really good conversation for most most people hate waste so it's good to open these conversations and then you can move on to what the climate impact is so you don't have to start off with oh are you worried about climate change you open the door with a discussion about why something like that is good why a community fridge saves waste why a baby clothes library is really helpful for parents and then you can move on to some of the discussion so it's not just on that mitigation side let's cut our impact through this but it's how do we develop some of these um projects and systems so that when supply chains do crumble, when we are struggling to feed ourselves, clothe ourselves, we've already bought, built some of this self-sufficiency so that we, are, we aren't so reliant on this, you know, what, what we're currently reliant on and we can actually help each other as community. So, you know, I, I'm really struggling on this side of things. Maybe this person can help me in exchange for something. So I think all those things are really important to start trying to explore now while we've still got time. We saw from COVID what it's like being on the back foot. Unless you get ahead of a crisis, you are never, ever going to be able to properly deal with it. So I think through community organising is one of the critical ways we can look at adapting to some of this. 100%. 100%. I think it's so right. Um, And, you know, there's 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 a new kind of, emphasis and gusto and community community organizing in the kind of climate movement which I think is long overdue and is so critical because it is about building that infrastructure and that resilience Um, and also kind of you know organizing people to both support themselves but also to kind of agitate for bigger change. Well I find it really interesting when we went into this I was like well how do you need to how do you need to parent differently when we have mass migration when we have kind of crops failing when we don't have enough water for everybody but actually what the sense I'm getting from from both you Miata and you Ben is actually what skills they need is to be a good friend is to be a good neighbor is to share you know all of those things that you actually teach them at kind of baby group Um, those are actually life skills aren't they 100% 100% and you know if we got enough of the next generation with those skills and it's also values you know it's it's the combination of the two then the response when it comes I think will be a far more humane response uh, that may well allow us to claw ourselves out of the problem that we're creating for ourselves. You're also trying to push a humane response to policymakers when you talk about cost of living in housing and you always also weave climate into those conversations why do you do that? it's now sort of second nature for me and in part it's second nature because the sort of the the analysis that we have is the root cause of the climate crisis is the same root cause um, as if you like the social justice crisis that we're facing in the end we've got an economic system that doesn't work for people it doesn't work for the planet and if you only deal with one part of that equation you're only dealing with part of the problem. So if I'm talking about cost of living, I will take it to climate because there are a set of rules of the games uh, that means that we are in a position where people 
are watching their living standards being squeezed for well over a decade and now being hit by a massive cost of living crisis. But those same rules of the game are the ones that are, mean that we are exploiting our planet, uh, that we are not living within environmental limits, and that is exacerbating a crisis that is real, that is here. Uh, and I think we have to always be talking about the two things, hand in glove, because the solution has to be a solution that responds to the real environmental crisis that we're facing, but in a way that also puts people at the heart of it. But why is there, I mean, anyway, this is an endless question, but why is there such resistance to something that's just so fundamentally obvious that's wrong, that needs to change? Like, why? Uh, I ask myself that question every day. I mean, there is a quite astounding, almost an illogical disjuncture between the reality of what we see, the reality of what the science is telling us pretty categorically and clearly, the reality that most people acknowledge and where our politics is. Um, and the way I sort of see it is, you know, it's like we, we can see the chasm, but we're sleepwalking into that chasm because the jolt that is required and the change that is required is almost beyond our sort of political mindset and bandwidth. Um, and, you know, part of the challenge that we have is politics is always here in the now. Um, people are thinking about the short-term cycle. Um, and unfortunately, the long-term is no longer long-term. You know, we're talking about 10 years. We're talking about two parliamentary terms where if we don't act, the impacts of this will feel quite profound. And yet it feels like our politics hasn't hit that. Um, I, I'm quite hopeful. I'm hopeful in part because actually I think the work that activists have done has been absolutely phenomenal. And if you think about where the debate was, uh, you know, five, six years ago, the science hasn't changed. It was always very clear, but there was a kind of slow march to change. Um, I think because of a lot of pressure um, that uh, both youth activists have mobilised, there has been an upping at least of the rhetoric. And for me, if you like the final piece, the final stretch is to get action to match that rhetoric. And we're not there yet. And unfortunately, you know, I had a lot of hope going into uh, COP26 uh, because there was so much consensus on the need for climate action and all the rhetoric was exactly where it needed to be. Everyone recognized the scale of the challenge and, and yet we weren't able to break through. There were big wins without a doubt, but we weren't able to break through. Um, and in part, I fear uh, that what will happen is that there will be action, but it will be quite slow. Um, and then we will get into crisis mode and then we will act at a phenomenal rate, um, kind of pandemic mindset. But it almost feels like we have to be at that tipping point for people to recognize, which is not the way it should be. Uh, we, do, we don't have to do it that way. Uh, but for whatever reason, there is this sort of sluggish re re resistance to do what we need to do, partly because it's hard. It is hard. How do you handle that as a as a parent, as a working mum, knowing what you know in the working arena, but just in terms of how you're raising your own kids? Yeah, I mean, look, on a personal level, first frustration and anger, um, because it's generally, you, and I, you know, I think everyone feels it, but when you've got kids and you're like, this is their future, we're jeopardising. It is quite hard to reconcile that with what you're seeing. Um, and what I struggle with is that, you know, most of the decision makers will have kids. And how can you look at them and know that you are failing them, because that's what we're doing, we're failing them. Um, so there is kind of frustration and anger on their behalf. Um, but equally, you know, the, the thing that is really, I've got a seven-year-old and a four-year-old twins. Um, and, you know, I've had the conversation about climate with my seven-year-old. And I think the thing that struck me first is, 
how savvy they are, how much they understand the issues, yeah. even at a really young age. I mean, it was, mm. you know, my son brought it up. He was just like, oh, so climate change, this is a problem. And it was, you know, just like, you know, and people really need to be recycling more. They need to be using public transport, but they're not. And, you know, it was, there was, and this is before we even started to talk about it. You know, I, I like to have sort of conversations with him about politics and the world um, in terms that he can understand and navigate. Uh, but I was really struck by just the level of awareness already at a really young age. Mm. Um, and for me, the two things I try and do is honesty. Uh, so we have conversations about it in, in a sort of non-scary way. This is this is the challenge. Uh, this is where we are. These are the things that we can do. Um, this is why I think, you know, that the guys that are in charge that should be doing more and better aren't doing better. Um, but, but I always sort of frame it in hope because in the end, I'm, I'm an optimistic person. And I think you can look at what we're facing and feel quite not just frustrated, but die about it. But I also think that we have a phenomenal capacity for change when we set our minds to it. Um, and if I wasn't hopeful before about our capacity to do the impossible when we're faced with the need to do the impossible, in some respects, some of the things I think we saw over the course of the pandemic, uh, when the combination of science um, and uh, you know the, the, the might of the collective through the state came together, we were able to do things that people would not have believed <laughs> yes, was so possible year, a year before. And so it is, and it is that point of political will. And so I say to him, uh, you know, we've got to force the guys in charge uh, to listen, to do better um, and and start breeding in him that sense of agency and advocacy, because in the end, it will be people standing up and saying enough is enough. You need to do better by us that will start to shift our politics. Yeah, I, I mean, I think to add, uh, I agree with what Mias is saying. I think to add another part to that is just the... Um, sense of overwhelm that so much of chatting about this creates that we've all just got this built-in defense mechanism it's a really horrifying subject to think about especially as a parent when you start thinking about your kid's future or what have you um, and I think you know it's, it's it, it applies to all of us I think whether you're just the average person on the street or a politician we've all got this built-in defense mechanism and trying to work through that is a really big part of this and try and I suppose help people process a lot of the negative emotions um, to help spur them into action we all know it's a problem we all know it's going to affect all of us but it's just built into us as that defense to not want to think about what a dire future might be awaiting so you can't get through as Miata said you can't get through that unless you start having honest conversations about it and I think the key to that is framing it the reality with a positivity the people who are doing the most about the climate crisis feel the most positively about us averting the worst of it and I think that's something really interesting to explore and if you know that action breeds some positivity how can we put the reverse into action as well by having positive messages that are realistic that do speak to the truth about you know what we face but look we can avert some of the worst of it and each half a degree we avoid of, of heating means you know hundreds of millions of lives potentially I think finding that balance is absolutely key it's easier said than done but I think doing that on a community level is a, is a good start to bringing more people in around some of this action. We're also really interested Miata in your kind of feelings about why it is or just how we go about having this climate conversation also in a cost of living crisis because it kind of has felt historically like climate change is the kind of um, domain of kind of privileged people who have time, energy, resources to kind of think about, you know, existential problems. Um, 
And I'm really aware of that. And I, I'm, I really worry about how to make climate action accessible to everybody um, or whether that's even necessary. Is it more necessary just to get the people in charge to sort it out? What are your feelings on that? Yeah, really good question. So I think it's necessary because in the end, I've come to the view that the people in charge won't budge unless they are budged. Uh, And that means that there has to be a collective clamour for action um, and quite uh, quick and radical action, uh, because otherwise it's just a kind of sluggish complacency. And that can only come if you've got enough people in your communities that are saying enough is enough, we want something better. Um, I actually think, I think we're in a really dangerous moment. Uh, And I say this because until uh, the sort of, you know, the end of last year going into this year, I thought there was the greatest amount of consensus we've had on climate action that we've seen for years. Um, I think coming out of COP, certainly in this country, certainly in a lot of European countries, irrespective of whether we went far enough, there was a sense that this was a priority and we needed to act. Um, And there weren't voices that were dissenting. And I think the thing that we're seeing now is just the sheer horror, the sheer immediacy, the scale of the cost of living crisis is opening up a debate that says, we've got to deal with this now. And actually let's put climate on the back foot. And worse than that, uh, there is a strand of argument that says, we're asking people to bear the cost of that transition when they can't afford to. And why on earth would, for example, a country like the UK that's done so much be asking this of its population? And for me, that is very dangerous because it's fracturing a consensus that I thought we had built. And I think the counter to that is, yes, there is the call to arms because this is existential and the downsides are horrific and we need to act to mitigate that. But I also think we need to be talking about the upside in a way that feels tangible to people. Are you going to, Ben, your point about people's defensive mechanism, that sense that, well, I know this is going to be bad, but it's not going to affect me. Um, And that allows a kind of, if you like, a dissociation from this. I think part of how we counter that is to start selling the story about how this can be an opportunity. And, you know, the, the, the green movement is constantly talking about this green economy and green jobs. But in a way that I think still feels quite abstract to people, in a way that doesn't feel real to their lives, in a way it's not like, what, what jobs for me? What does this mean for my community? And I think we need to start, you know, the way that I see it is to do this and to do this at the pace that we're going to need to is going to require a massive disruption and a huge transition. In there is a big opportunity to start changing an economy that doesn't work for people. You know, if you take, for example, the scale of investment we know is gonna have to go into uh, the generation of renewables, the decarbonization of the economy, that's also investment into communities that have been starved of investment for decades, communities that are left behind. There is a way in which we do this transition uh, to revive places. There's a way in which we do this transition in order to create genuine jobs that we say, actually, these jobs should be jobs that pay well. These jobs should be jobs that have progression, that we use it to kind of rebuild parts of the economy, manufacturing sectors that have been denuded in parts of um, our community. So there is a really powerful story about economic renewal in this agenda. And I think we need to start telling it in bread and butter terms. And I'll give you an example. So big debate at the moment about uh, energy efficiency and home insulation. 
And we kicked off a campaign called the Great Homes Upgrade. Uh, and the thing that my organizers and campaigners said is, do not use the word insulation, do not use the word energy efficiency. <laughs> Let's talk about this in aspirational terms about people's homes being upgraded, about everyone having access to warm homes that don't cost a fortune, things uh, for them to heat, things that feel very bread and butter and real. And then you use that as a wedge into this is the upside that comes from this transition. And I think we need to be in that space partly to get past that defensive mechanism, but also partly to mobilize people. There is something exciting here if we get it right. So let's rally and mobilize and get our politics to make sure that this works for us. Yeah, no, I totally agree with what you're saying. I think it all comes down to, I suppose, none of us telling the story quite right, is it? It's a messaging issue, really. We're not, we're not, I suppose, branding it well enough as an opportunity. And you, and when you start even using particular words, if people, we, we so many of us just, whether we like to think of ourselves as individuals or not, obviously we, we, we do sort of, there's certain things that we don't identify with that just immediately make us switch off or what have you. So finding those ways to appeal right across demographics, across the political spectrum is obviously really key to this. And so finding those, those stories and those messages that help a point out why all of this is so interconnected and how we're rapidly heading for a cliff by not changing course uh, quick enough and b the ways that we can actually bring a wide section of the community in that's that's kind of what we're trying to do in that if you can approach it from a, a local sense then hope i think there's a bit more sense of identity within communities and there might be in a wider scale and hopefully trying to build some of that around, well, look, we all care about the place we live. We all care about our neighbours, our family, our friends in this area. I think it becomes a lot easier to build momentum in that way. Um, but we're looking at doing a, um, trying to team up a bit of a comms uh, programme for the winter um, around, as you say, retro things. So we've got a little section within Zero downstairs, which is the physical premises the charity operates out of. Um, and looking at how we can join up with lots of other organisations who the loads have seemed pretty keen on this, but to do it something like using the words cosy, Surrey or something like that. So we don't start banging on about energy efficiency. So we don't start saying, you know, using the words green or whatever it might be. So that it's actually something that makes, you know, people take pride in what they're doing in their home, making a home for their family, that side of thing. Um, and it is tricky. It's quite hard to find something that aligns people around all of that. But I think if, if we can start figuring out ways to do different, different experiments that bring some of that in, I think then we've got an opportunity to really paint some of the advantages of doing a lot of this, really. It doesn't all have to be doom and gloom. There is, as you say, a huge opportunity here for completely remodelling how we live and work in a way that suits way more people. But we've got to find those people, bring those people in with, with who have got so many obstacles to engaging already. And that is, again, that's way easier said than done. I actually think we have to be quite honest, like, you know, most of the times we don't have the bandwidth to hold it all. Um, and in truth, you know, there, there will be parents that are juggling multiple jobs, that are really worried about family finances, uh, that are doing their best just to sort of keep their kids afloat. And you throw something like climate on and they just they will just switch off. Um, and I think that is part of the challenge. Um, and I think for me, there are two ways. I think there are two ways through that. I think a recognizing the reality um, and not pretending that's not the case. Um, and I think secondly, conversations that that energize and mobilize. Because I think sometimes if you enter the climate debate from just the scale of it, it's just. I mean, even you know, I'm I'm a policy person. This is my bread and butter. But if I stop and think about what it is that we're actually grappling with, I, I find it really 
overwhelming uh, to the point of paralysis um, because you feel like you're a tiny cog in a machine that is just walking towards something absolutely catastrophic. And I think that is quite hard to engage people. I think we have to start with where people are. Um, and actually some of the most amazing organizing has been organizing mothers around climate um, from that sense of responsibility, that sense of hope, that sense of agency, that sense of uh, I'm fighting for a better future from my kids. Um, and I think if you start it from there, you can open the space for uh, a conversation that people are willing to enter into. And I think, again, it comes back to that kind of that there is a future here that's very different to the one that we have, but it's also really good for our kids if we get it right. And that is worth fighting for. Um, and I think that will allow people to mobilize, not everyone, and that's okay, uh, but we don't need everyone to mobilize. We need enough to mobilize, and then we need others to um, mobilize with their hearts and minds, uh, their political votes, their voice, uh, every time they like meet their MP to give them a hard time, to, like, to be able to vocalize the fact that you want something better and it looks like this, and then others will be more active. And it's that combination of broad collective consent for something different, and we're not there yet, because I don't think we've, I think, you know, climate is still the number three agenda. So we have definitely got it into people's consciousness. Um, but I don't think we've got it there where people are willing to see this as something that actually, when I have all these other challenges, this is the thing I want to fight for because I want the upside for my kids. And I think that's the space that we've got to get into, um, which is a far more energizing space. Everything is just designed to keep us going down that route, isn't it? Haven't got time to think about that. Can't face that. Someone else will deal with it. That's entirely the point of having to completely reassess how we live and work to actually put what communities care about right at the centre of an economic model. So things like care, creativity, community, all these things that a lot of this post-growth stuff focuses on. That's how, how do we move to putting that at the centre of um, you know how we build out a new model of, that can actually suit our communities that gives back to us um, and that actually gives us some time to think about right well how can we make this better not just you know for future generations but right now how do we all start focusing on improving quality of life I think that's 100% and the only thing I mean I completely agree with that and you know one of the things that we have tried to do when we sort of try and construct conversations with community groups is to link a whole lot of immediate issues to the central structural issue. Um, you know, the fact that you're struggling with childcare, the fact that you can't get a decent house that doesn't cost you a fortune, the fact that, that there are all these issues that actually connect back to the fact that the rules of the game are stacked in a particular way. And actually in the end, we need to change the rules of the game. And I think the more that we can have conversations that root a lot of the ways that people are worried about, you know, that cost of living crisis, you know, the fact that your pay packet doesn't keep up with the cost of raising a family, all of those are interlinked. Um, and you need to open up the space that just says, you know, it's been constructed in a certain way. It does not have to be constructed in that way. Um, and in the end, the political pressure that we need is to change that, to change that settlement. Um, and I think that's a hard conversation to have, but I think we are facing a whole set of challenges at the moment that means that, increasingly people are having those conversations anyway and it's about connecting it to something positive because I think there's a sense that we all know the thing that we reject that we don't like that's not working for us in our communities but what does that mean for a positive demand I think is the sort of conversation we need to construct so people say this doesn't work but this could help and then that could help it links you to a set of changes that helps on social justice but also environmental justice. Miata Fambula there, showing us that the rules of the game can be constructed differently. 
and how the most important thing to prepare ourselves and our kids for climate change is to value community and connection to others. A huge thanks to Ben for guest presenting today's episode and you can check out what Zero Carbon Guildford is up to by clicking on the link we've added to this episode. Next week, please join Babs and I as we speak to youth climate activist Mitzi Janelle Tan from the Philippines, who also has some surprising advice on how to parent in the climate crisis. See you then. Mum, will the planet die before I do? Is a Corner Shop media production presented and produced by Babita Sharma, Katie Glasborough and edited by Nisha Patel.